The scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Melphibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Melphibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Father, I thank you so much for being a God who speaks. I thank you for being a Father who is not silent. I thank you for being a God who leads us in the way that we should go, who will discipline us when we need to be disciplined. I thank you for being a God who revealed your words and preserved your words and carried your words through centuries of time so that we could read these stories today. And I pray, Father, that you, the living God, would now come and use your living word to shape our lives. Father, we so desperately need to hear from you. We open our hearts to you. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for what you'll do. In his mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen. Well, over the last several months, we have uh, had a sort of belated front row seat to watch the rise of King David and a few weeks ago to watch the fall of King David, and in the last few weeks to watch the discipline of the Lord in the life of King David. And as serious as that discipline has been at times, as harsh as it's been at times, I think we've also begun to see over the last couple of weeks that the discipline of the Lord in the life of David was actually a manifestation of the love of the Lord in the life of David. Many centuries later, the author of Hebrews would ask this very important question. He said in chapter 12, he said, what father do you know about that does not discipline his children? The father that does not discipline his children is neglectful at best and abusive at worst. The father who does not discipline his children may have a kind of sentiment of love in his heart toward his kids, but in fact, that father hates his children. It may not be the kind of hate that's outward and visible and could get a guy thrown in jail, But it is hate nonetheless. To withhold from our children the guiding wisdom and love that they need is to express a kind of hatred toward them. Since the Lord loves his children and does not hate them, he must discipline his children. Even when one of his kids is his anointed king over three million sacred people. It doesn't matter the human position of the person. If that person is a child of God, he or she must undergo the discipline of the Lord. This is an expression of the love of the Lord. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that if we do not experience God's discipline, it shows us plainly something, that we are not his actual children, that we are in some ways pretenders or we are fooling ourselves, that we do not actually know him, and the author actually says that we are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. The discipline of the Lord in our lives is proof that we belong to him. And so I hope that we've been seeing over these weeks that as harsh as God's actions have been in David's life, They are actually a manifestation of his love in David's life. So one of the major lessons we're learning here today, probably not new to a lot of us, but I really do pray that we'll be humble and receive this lesson in the deeper places of our hearts. You know, a lot of Christian life is not about coming to know new things you've never heard before. It's about coming to understand in greater depths the things that you already know. Isn't that true? 
I was praying about this this morning and I thought about Kim and I's vacation recently and we were on one day, we were on a bicycle ride and we stopped for a quick rest stop and Kim asked me a, a question about something about my past and three hours later we were getting back on our bikes and traveling down the road because we got into a really deep and meaningful conversation that God has continued to use in our lives. In that conversation I told Kim a bunch of stories that she's heard again and again and yet because of some things that have transpired she heard them in new depth. She heard them with new ears in a way. That's love, beloved. It's a person who's coming to know what they already know. And this is what it means to walk with the Lord. It's humbling ourselves, not to say to God, ah, I already know that, don't bother me with that. But it's humbling ourselves to say, Father, please teach me what I think I already know. So here's one way I would put the lesson. The discipline of the Lord breeds life in us because it reveals his love for us. The discipline of the Lord breeds life inside of our lives because it manifests, it reveals the details of his love for us. You see, in some ways, the discipline of God works out the specific aspects of his love for us. Sometimes we say to each other, I love you, and we probably mean that, but there's not a whole lot of content to our love. It's just kind of a feeling we have toward each other. It might be real, but the Lord has a a detailed love for us. Do you see? He doesn't love us in some general or abstract way. He loves you by name. He knows every hair that is on your head. He fashioned you inside of your mother's womb. He determined the beginning of your days and the end of your days. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And in his discipline comes the details of his love. The discipline of the Lord breeds life in us because it is a revealing of his love for us, you see. Today, we're going to keep learning this lesson because it's really the overarching theme of chapters 12 to 20, so we're not going to go off this lesson, but today, we're going to see two new aspects of it, two dynamics that are at play and that are essential to the working of the discipline of the Lord in our lives. One of those aspects has to do with our part and the way we respond to God. The other has to do with how God operates and how he does the things that he does and how, in some ways, strange his ways are to us. And praise be to God, this is one of those chapters that's neatly divided almost into two halves. The first half is about our part in God's discipline, and the second half is about his ways and and, and the ways in which he works out his discipline. So we'll talk about each of those in turn. Turning our attention now to the text, you may remember from last week that David's son Absalom, who, by the way, his name means the father of peace, Av Shalom is his name. Isn't it kind of ironic that the father of peace has just launched a coup against his father. But Avshalom launches this coup against his dad and it's a very strong coup and so David flees Jerusalem. By the grace of God, hundreds if not thousands of his friends remained faithful to him and actually went into exile with him. And together they ascended the western side of the Mount of Olives, the very place where Jesus later would weep before he went to the cross. And the Bible says that as they're ascending, David was in so much mourning that he wouldn't even put shoes on his feet and all of his people followed suit. They wouldn't even wear shoes. They wouldn't even let their heads be uncovered. Somehow, way, they covered their heads and all the way up the mountain, they wept and they mourned before the Lord. They wept at their sin. They wept at the, the discipline of God that had come into their life. They wept at all of the brokenness that was being displayed before them, but they wept in humility because they knew that God was doing exactly the right thing. As they reached the peak of that mountain, you may remember that David found out that one of his very close friends named Ahithophel had betrayed him and gone from him over to his, his uh, son, Absalom. And there on the mountain, when David heard that horrible news, his heart broke in two, and he just called out to the Lord and asked for his help. And just like that, God sent in part his answer to that prayer. God sent a man named Hushai, who was also a close friend and confidant and advisor to David, and together they decided that the best thing for Hushai to do was not to go into exile, but to go back into Jerusalem, where he could try to infiltrate Absalom's inner circle, if you will, to put a a spy, to put a, a confidant, an ally inside the middle of the coup was the plan, it was the hope, and with that, Hushai went his way, and David continued. So chapter 15 ends with Hushai coming back into the city of Jerusalem from the eastern side and Absalom entering the city of Jerusalem from the southern side, end of chapter. Chapter 16 begins with David and his friends cresting the Mount of Olives and beginning their descent down the eastern side. 
And just as they had crested over the mountain and were beginning to go down to the other side, toward the wilderness, toward an unknown future, toward the unknown details of the discipline of the Lord in their lives, a man named Ziba came out to meet them. And you may remember who Ziba is. Does his name strike any memory in your mind, especially if you've been here with us through this series? Well, Ziba was the servant of a guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, David's very close friend. And Jonathan, as you may remember, was the son of King Saul. So Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul, the guy who had just been ousted from the kingdom and the guy who David had replaced. Well, it didn't just happen. A lot of time had passed. But you may remember from 2 Samuel 9 that David actually sought out Mephibosheth and instead of punishing him for being an heir to the throne and a potential threat to his own throne, David lavished grace upon this guy by restoring to him all the personal property of Saul and by inviting him to sit at David's own table as though he was part of the royal family. David was overwhelmingly gracious to this guy in the way that God had been overwhelmingly gracious to David. And he appointed Ziba and all his family to be the servants of Mephibosheth. That's who Ziba is. So now time has passed by. And there's this question hanging in the air. What's Mephibosheth really up to and what's he ever going to do? David is now into exile and here comes Ziba. And he's got all kinds of stuff. So David is curious but probably he's suspicious. And he looks at him, he's got two donkeys all saddled up, he's got 200 loaves of bread, he's got 100 things that probably of figs, he's got probably a very large vat of wine, and David asks him, what's all this about, and and what what, what are your motives, I I think is what David's really asking him. So Ziba says, King, I care about you, I'm loyal to you, and I wanted to bring you some donkeys to ride on because you're a king and you shouldn't have to walk like this. And I wanted to bring supplies for your people so that they wouldn't be famished in the desert. And having spent many years of my life in the desert, I can relate to that. It's not an easy thing to just walk for mile upon mile through barren desert. You can easily get famished. You can easily die out there. And so Ziba's saying, King, I'm just bringing you supplies and I want to bless you. So the king, probably still a little bit suspicious, says, okay, then, but where's Mephibosheth? Where's your master? Why have you left him behind? You're supposed to be caring for him. And you may remember Mephibosheth was crippled in his feet. He was a paraplegic. He couldn't get around by himself. So why aren't you caring for him? And why isn't he with you? And with that, Ziba said that Mephibosheth had seen in David's exile an opportunity to seize power. So from Ziba's point of view, it looked like this man was crippled, but he wasn't stupid, and he wasn't lacking in ambition. He saw in David's exile the possibility that the whole kingdom and all the power and prestige and possessions might be transferred to him, so he stayed back behind in Jerusalem. We don't know what this did in David's heart because the author doesn't say, but we know what David did. He pretty quickly made a decision, and he said to Ziba, he said, listen, all that I granted to Mephibosheth is now yours. And with those words, David disinherited Mephibosheth, and he inherited Ziba, if you will. Ziba was very grateful for this, and so the Bible says that he paid homage to David, which probably means that he literally bowed with his face before David and pledged his loyalty to him. And this is the end of scene one of chapter 16. We're going to find out in a few weeks that there's actually more to Ziba's story than meets the eye. But I think for this time, it's important for us to just hang out here and receive what the Lord has for us. And what I see that the Lord is doing here is that even while the Lord is disciplining David for his sins, he's also working for David against those who have risen up against him. And that amazes me. Even while the Lord himself is working to drive David out of Jerusalem, the Lord is also working against those who drove David out of Jerusalem. Do you see the irony here? God is at one time, and one in the same time, disciplining his son and working for his son. He's letting his son eat the bitter fruit of his sin, and he's giving to his son the most tasty, eternal, lasting fruit that he could imagine, and that is the manifest grace of God in his life. Even while God is disciplining his son, he's working for his son. David surely knew this dynamic. When we read the Psalms, we can see it's not like this was a brand new lesson to David, but beloved, I want to suggest to you, David was a humble man. And at this time of his life, he's learning at more depths in his heart and more depths in his mind the truth that God works for us, even when he has to come apart against parts of us. This is the nature of our God. And by the way, notice 
that in David's pronouncement to Ziba, we get a little bit of a glimpse into his heart. Think about this. David's going into exile, and some things he's about to say show us that he, he doesn't really know what his future is. But I think that here in this moment, God gave him a momentary prophetic sight that he knew he would be back in Jerusalem, he would be back on the throne, and he would have authority. How in the world could he pronounce that Mephibosheth was disinherited and that Ziba would come into all of that inheritance if he didn't think he'd have the authority to work this out? Do you see? I don't think he really knew what his future was, but I think that in this moment, God gave him a gracious glimpse of his future so that he knew that soon he would again have the power to say this to that person and that to this person. Beloved, this is the grace of God at work in the life of a man. When the Lord is disciplining you, watch out for his signs of grace because he will often do this. I have experienced this in my life where I'm under the discipline of the Lord and yet at some point in prayer or in conversation, God gives me a glimpse of the other side. I think this is what David is seeing and I praise God for it. It's a manifestation of the grace of God in the midst of the discipline of God. As David and his friends descended down the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, they came to this little city called Bahurim, which was at the bottom of the mountain. As they passed through that city, a relative of King Saul named Shimei came out to them, and he didn't come out in friendship. He came out cursing. He came out not just saying bad words. That's not the point here. He may have been speaking bad words. But more of the point here is that he's actually speaking curses over David. He's trying to curse the king. He was also, as if cursing wasn't enough, picking up rocks and throwing them as hard and as far as he can toward David and his entourage. Now, thankfully for David, the Bible says that he was surrounded by his mighty men, which were fierce, fierce warriors and very experienced warriors. And I don't think they were afraid at all of a couple stray stones. I think they would have known exactly what to do. I don't think David was any, in any particular danger. The, the throwing of a stone was more of a message than it was a threat, you see? And I think that the stones did not caused fear to rise up in David's heart, but I think Shimei's words absolutely pierced his heart. Just like a sharp two-edged sword, just like a, a knife through warm butter, those words pierced his heart. But as Shimei cursed and cursed and cursed, one of David's close friends, his name was Abishai, he was the brother of Joab, David's commander, and he said, King, why should this dead dog be allowed to talk to you like this? Let me go over there and take his life. Let me go over there and kill him. David, beloved, at this point, displays things in his character that make me absolutely admire him. I told Kevin earlier this week as we were in our staff meeting that I, I have felt the horror of David's sin and the disgust of David's sin. At some points, I felt like if I was ever to see David, I wouldn't even want to really talk with him. I just, like, what he did was that horrible, and yet he was humble, and God is working in his life. It's been 11 years since all that happened, and now we begin to see things in his character that make me absolutely admire this man, admire him. He could not say what he's about to say without the grace of God at work in his life. He looks at Abisha, the guy who wants to go kill Shimei for him, and he says, listen to me, and you listen to me carefully. How can I send you over there to kill him if the Lord has sent him? If the Lord said to him, go curse David, how can I say don't do this? How can I say off with your head, I will receive from the Lord? I think that probably everybody heard David say this, but he now turned his attention just from Abishai, he turns his attention now to everybody, and he says to his whole entourage, he says, listen to me and listen to me carefully, okay? You need to understand where my mind is at, where my heart is at, and what my perception of God's work is. My own son, Av Shalom, the father of peace, I named him, I love him, he's trying to kill me. So why would it surprise us that this descendant of Saul, this Benjamite, would be after me to get me? He's never been okay with the fact that I'm the king. Should it surprise us that he wants my head? Should we be shocked at that? No, we should not. So I want you to leave him alone. I want you to let him curse. And do you know why I want you to let him curse? Please listen carefully. David said, the Lord has sent him to do this. I actually think David was right about that. Do not kill this man who's being so disrespectful to the anointed king of God because the Lord has sent him to do this. What I hear David saying is, I have sinned greatly and I am not afraid to receive the just 
consequences of my sin. If God would curse me, let him curse me. I am ready to receive it. I am ready to receive whatever the Lord has for me. And maybe, just maybe, in his grace, God will look upon the unjust things that are being said and done to me right now, and maybe God will work upon my, on my behalf against my enemies. But if he's going to do that, let him do that. We will not strike my enemies. The Lord will have to make that decision. For now, we are going to receive this curse and humble our hearts before the Lord. Beloved, that amazes me. I'm not sure that that would be my heart. I'm just not sure. And I have to tell you, as much as I hate what David did in his sin, I absolutely admire the humility of this man and of his heart. With that, David and his friends continued the march into the wilderness. And I don't know exactly how long it was, but for some good long time, Shimei followed them on the other side of a a ravine, and he kept on cursing, he kept on throwing stones, he kept on making accusations to David, he kept saying he's just a man of blood, he had killed all of Saul's people, he was an illegitimate heir to the throne, saying all these crazy things. At some point, he drops off. At some point, David's men reach the Jordan River, not far, by the way, from where Israel entered into the Promised Land and not far from where Jesus was baptized. David comes to that place, and it says he's exhausted. You can imagine this. He's physically exhausted. More importantly, he's emotionally and spiritually wiped out. He's done. Been listening to all this curse, receiving the discipline of the Lord hour upon hour, he's wiped out. But the Bible says in the Jordan River, he refreshed himself. And I don't want to read too much into the Bible, and I have a lot of thinking to do about this, but boy, that just doesn't seem like an accidental detail to me. You know, he hops in the river, the very place where Israel crossed over, and Jesus was baptized and refreshes himself. There's something there, right after going up and down the Mount of Olives. So just just something to think about. This part of David's story, beloved, raises for us the first major dynamic that I alluded to earlier. Because here we see him display something that's absolutely crucial to the discipline of God in our lives, and that something is humility. Do you see how easy it would have been for David not to be humble? It would have been so easy for David, even though he deserved to receive the discipline of the Lord, it would have been easy for him to harden his heart against the Lord and to be angry with God, wouldn't it? It would have been easy for David to be filled with self-pity and just whining about all of his suffering all the way up and down that mountain, all the way around. In so many ways, David could have been filled with self-pity. It would have been so easy for David to strike out against this man who was unjustly cursing him, and nobody would have blamed him for doing it. Nobody in his circle would have, at least. All he had to say was, go, and it would have been done. That man's life would have been over, over. And yet David decided to humbly receive what he had to say. But as for other people, they would not have blamed him. First of all, Shimei should never have talked to a king like that. You don't talk to the anointed leaders of God with that kind of disrespect. And in those days, there was one anointed leader that held that kind of position. You do not talk to God's anointed like that. You do not. We think in America especially... You know, when, when people from the third world come here, they are shocked by the disrespect in our culture and their rights. We are so disrespectful, we think of nothing of authority. We think nothing of lambasting authority. Just look at Facebook and you'll see exactly what I mean. Look in your own heart. I know I look at my own heart. I just have so little respect for the authorities. But this is not the heart of God. And he said, when I put an anointed man up in front of my people, especially as king over Israel, you are to respect him. Shimei was absolutely disrespectful. And more than that, he was lying about things, or he was misinformed. But one way or the other, he was wrong. He said that David was a man of blood, and in some ways that's true, but not in the way that he was saying. David was not a man who unjustly took people's blood, except in one specific scene we saw back in 1 Samuel. Generally speaking, David was a very just king. And then this man said, cursing David, that he had wiped out the house of Saul and that God was causing him now to pay the price for what he had done. When we know the truth, don't we? David protected Saul. David spared Saul. David took people's lives who tried to help him and killed people in Saul's house, didn't he? David was incredibly restrained and gracious toward the house of Saul. And now Shimei is saying the opposite, and he's just lying. He could easily have died for that. But beloved, David was a man who was willing to receive the discipline of the Lord, no matter what that looked like. 
He had been living with his sin for 11 years now. Okay, from chapter 11 to now, 11 years have passed. And God has been humbling him. Let me ask you something. Have you ever in your life been under a discipline, a word of discipline from the Lord that lasted for 11 years? How would that feel? What kind of weight would be upon your soul? Here, David is expressing humility. I don't know when he wrote Psalm 38, but every day in my quiet times I read a psalm, and the other day I read Psalm 38, and it just sounds so much like it came from this time of his life, and surely he at least had this time of his life in his mind. He said in Psalm 38, he says, Lord, I am ready to fall. And I don't think he means by that that he wants to fall. I think what he's saying is, I am ready, I am willing to receive any measure of discipline from your hand that you have meted out against me because my pain is ever before me. He said, I confess my iniquity to you, O God. I am sorry for my sins. My heart is humble before you. It's open before you. And Father, if to accomplish your purposes in my life, you have to remove me as king, then do that, Father, because I want your will more than I want my position, beloved. That is humility. And without that, the discipline of the Lord cannot have its designed effects in our lives. The Bible later says, First uh, Peter 5.5 5 is one of the places you'll see this. God opposes the proud, but he gives what to the humble? Grace to the humble, right? Let me put it to you this way. God is repelled by arrogance, and he's attracted to humility. When God sees arrogance, he feels like we feel when we go into the woods this particular year and get covered by mosquitoes from head to toe. Have you had that experience this year? It's been a bad mosquito year. I have had some horrible experiences with mosquitoes. I'm being serious. I walked into the woods, it's like, oh my God, I gotta get out of here and I gotta get out of here right now. That's how God feels when he sees arrogance. Get me out! I hate arrogance. I hate arrogance. But the Lord is attracted to humility. He loves humility. It's like the savory smell of a great meal that's being cooked. He is attracted toward people who are humble, beloved. Without humility, the discipline of the Lord will never have its effect in our lives. In fact, I think one of the main ends of the discipline of the Lord in our lives is to humble us, right? It's arrogance that causes us to sin, and God in his grace says, listen, I'm going to do what I have to do. It will not be fun, but I'm going to do what I have to do to help you become humble. But we have to cooperate with this, beloved. And what I see in David's life is that he cooperated. He said to the Lord, amen, come humble me. I'm ready to fall. I'm ready for you to take it all from me. And even if some guy comes across the mountain and starts shouting things at me that are not true, that are vicious, that hurt like nobody knows but me, I will receive it, God. I will receive it because more than anything, God, I want to be humble before you. Oh, beloved, have ears to hear. Be humble, people. Be humble, people. And don't think that because you haven't sinned the way David sinned that this doesn't apply to you. Think about the Pharisees. They were nitpicking, obedient people to the law, and yet they were so arrogant that God said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're like people who look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're just filled with death. The, the, the nature of what you have done in your sin is not the point. God loves a humble heart, and he's attracted to that. Oh, God, please give us ears to hear. Please, Father, make us humble in the way that David was humble. Our hearts are so arrogant, Father. Oh, in so many subtle ways, God, our hearts are arrogant. Please, Lord, do what you must to humble us. Please bring us to a place where we're willing to receive all of your discipline in our lives. Praise be to God. Oh, how I pray we have ears to hear. The author of 2 Samuel, I think, just masterfully put on display the grace of God and the humility of David. And now, in the middle of chapter 16, he turns our attention away from David and toward his son Absalom. Now the scene is moving from the Mount of Olives and the Jordan River. We're going back to Jerusalem. And we're going to sit with Absalom as he enters into the city and he settles in there. We're going to see what he does. So it says in 2 Samuel 16, 15, that he had come in and he had settled into the city. And not long after that, David's friend Hushai approached him. We know who Hushai was. Absalom knew who he was in a way, but he didn't really know what he was up to. So Hushai comes to him and he says, long live the king, long live the king. 
And Absalom is clear that he's talking about him and he's not talking about David. He's not there to confront Absalom, he's there to make friends. And so Absalom says to him, is this your loyalty to my father? He was your good friend, you have been his counselor. Why did you not go into exile with him? And Hushai said, listen, I'm loyal to the one that God makes to be king, and I'm loyal to the one that the people choose as king. Right now that's you, so I'm with you, and I will be loyal to you. I have served your father, and now, Absalom, here I am. I want to serve you. This was received pretty quickly by Absalom, first of all, because he was a fool, and second of all, because he had just seen another one of his father's close advisors defect to him, and I don't think it was that hard for him to believe that somebody else had defect. Little did he know that this was part of a scheme. Little did he know that Hushai was there to infiltrate the inner circle, to work for David and also to send intelligence to David. And in the midst of all that, beloved, I see, again, the discipline of the Lord at work in David's life. There's a whole regime raising up against him, and I see the grace of God at work in David's life because he has just successfully planted in the middle of the coup an informant for David. This is the discipline and the grace of the Lord. And I must admit to you, That while that's inspiring to me, and while that's touching to me, it's also puzzling to me, and here's why. On the one hand, I'm deeply touched at the heart of God that works for us even when he's disciplining us. That really touches me. Because this is not just about David, this is about all of us. But I must admit to you that on the other hand, I'm puzzled by a God who is perfectly holy and cannot sin. James later says that there's not even a shadow inside of God. There's no shade of sin inside of him. And yet God is able to use things he hates, like lying, like deceit, in order to accomplish his purposes. No matter how you slice it, Hushai looked the fake king in the face and lied to him. And in this way, he got into the middle of the coup, right? So can you see that God is using things he forbids to work for David? That confuses me a little bit. This is what I call the strange sovereignty of God. And I mean that it's strange in the sense that it's unusual. It's it's not the way I would do it. It's kind of confusing to me. It upsets my preconceived theological categories. It makes me think about who our Father is and how he operates. It's a strange sovereignty. It's strange power that he has over all things, that he will use things he forbids in order to bring about what he desires. Now, this little scene raises plenty of questions, but the next scene raises even more questions. And so let's look at the rest of the chapter and we'll come back to this basic topic here. When we read chapter 16 at full speed and we come to verse 20, it looks a little bit like Absalom's opening question in verse 20 is about Hushai. So it looks like Hushai has just said to him, listen, I'm gonna be loyal to you. And then Absalom turns to Ahithophel and says, what do you think, what should we do? In other words, should we believe this guy? Should we receive him? Should we, or whatever. But I think as you read the chapter more carefully, you see that in verse 19, the whole thing with Hushai was already done. And now Absalom in verse 20 is actually asking a different question. And what he's asking is, listen, Ahithophel, we're now in the city. We've uh, captured the palace. We have control of the throne. We're in control of the kingdom. Now, what shall we do? What's next? Ahithophel thought about this just for a moment, and he gave him two pieces of advice, one of which we'll see this week and the other of which we'll see next week in chapter 17. Ahithophel's first piece of advice was this. He said, Absalom, I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you exactly what to do. Do the thing that will most graphically and quickly, most immediately display that you have completely broken with your father and that there's no going back. Here's what I want you to do. Have your people set up a tent on the roof of the king's house, the very roof, by the way, where David stood and saw Bathsheba and then later sinned. Have them set up a tent. And also, by the way, the word that is used for tent there means a sort of marriage tent, the place where people would consummate a marriage. So this isn't just any tent. This is a special kind of tent. Have them set up this special tent on the roof of the king's house and then go into the 10 concubines that David left behind to care for the house. Have relations with them and in this way show that you are an absolute stench to your father and that there's no going back. There is a total break between you and him. There will be no restoration. There will be no reconciliation. 
This will serve to strengthen the hands of those who have defected to you because they'll know that you mean business. Now just for one second, a little parenthesis. I have to admit that as much as I still admire David, I just grieve that he left 10 of these girls behind. How many did he take with him? How many wives did he have? Remember it says he despised the word of the Lord, beloved. He, when it came to the ladies, David didn't have much of an ear to listen to God, and I just pray that we'll be warned. His sexual sin had massive consequences. Do not go down that road with him. Do not go down that road with him. It's sad. Ahithophel, we learn in verse 23, had tremendous authority in this day. The Bible even says that to consult Ahithophel, people felt like it was right up there with consulting the word of God. That's amazing. I have mentors in my life that I I do esteem pretty close to that, so I think I can understand it. It's just like when they say something, it's so close to what's actually in the Word of God anyway, I just listen to them. I really listen to them. Ahithophel was like that to David and to Absalom. And so when he gave this absolutely horrible advice, Absalom took it. Absalom had that tent put up, and he went into that tent and did the evil deed in the sight of all Israel and in the sight of the Son itself end of chapter and beginning of the strange sovereignty of God for us. So let me put two things on the table here to help you feel the weight of the problem that this presents for us, okay? First of all, the Lord clearly and passionately forbid his people and especially his kings from engaging in the kind of acts that Absalom just engaged in. You can see this with regard to the kings. You can see it most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The Lord was not unclear. He absolutely forbid these acts. In Leviticus chapter 18, the Lord forbid all kinds of sexual relations to his people. And the specific thing that happened here is actually listed there. It says, do not do this. And the Lord says in Leviticus 18, if you do this, I will vomit you out of the land just in the way I'm vomiting all these other nations out of the land. I will not play favorites. You are not to be like them. You are to be my holy people. You are to exalt the glory of my name and of my will for all kinds of things, including sexuality. It's a great joy, a great privilege that I've called you into. And if you violate it, I will vomit you out. The Lord could not be clearer, beloved. He forbids these acts. And yet, second thing, Please turn back to chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. In response to David's sin, the Lord decreed these very things. This is the thing I'm trying to bring before us. God forbids these things. God decrees these things. This is, this is an issue. 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12. Behold, David, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, to one who is very close to you. And he shall lie with your wives in the the sight of this son. For you, David, did it secretly. The whole thing with Bathsheba and all that, you tried to hide it all. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. This is the strange sovereignty of God, beloved. In a powerful and unique and inescapable and, dare I say, disturbing way. This, this chapter, this story raises for us the issue of the strange sovereignty of God. We see here beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord will use and in some sense cause things he hates in order to bring about things that he loves. He will use evil things to bring about good things. According to the counsel of his will, The Lord will do things that are incredibly disturbing to us. And again, when I say disturbing, I don't mean to accuse God at all. What I'm saying is it upsets our preconceived notions. It takes us and shakes us up and says, I'm not the way you think I am. Here's who I actually am. Think about this and think about this carefully. This part of who God is causes us to think and to stir and to pray about the nature of sin and the nature of holiness and the nature of God's grace and the nature of God's discipline. Now, you may remember from last week that I suggested to you we have to distinguish between things God directly causes and things that God more indirectly allows. Please understand that this is not just some arbitrary distinction that's only interesting to intellectuals and to theologians. 
This kind of distinction is absolutely crucial for understanding who our Father is and how He operates. And if you don't make this distinction, I think you will gravely misunderstand our God. So, in David's case, whereas the Lord did speak specific words of discipline against David and in some ways decreed the things that happened to David, I do want to suggest that the Lord did not directly cause any of these people to do anything that they did. And here's what I mean, okay? Nowhere in the scripture will you find where God went to Absalom and said, hey, it's time for you to rise up and rebel against your father. Absalom made that decision. The Lord, nowhere in scripture, went to Ahithophel and commanded him to defect from David and go to Absalom. Ahithophel made that very, very poor choice. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God commanded Absalom to heed Ahithophel's advice. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God commanded Ahithophel to give this particular advice. In fact, you'll search the story in vain to see even one hint that Ahithophel ever even asked God, what shall we do? He never asked the Lord. God would never give this advice, right? And nowhere in Scripture does it say that when Absalom heard what Ahithophel had to say, that he went to God and asked him. He just received it as the word of God. The Lord did not directly tell Absalom, hey, you go in there and you do this thing. The Lord also did not command Israel. The Levites, by the way, their whole setup in Jerusalem was was situated right near the palace of the king. This would not have been hidden from them. Why did they just sit there and watch this and do nothing? Why did the powerful people in Israel who were supposed to know the word and will and ways of God sit by silent when such things happened? God did not directly command that. To me, beloved, it is an inescapable fact of this story that in some sense the Lord caused these things to come about. And yet it's also an inescapable fact that the Lord did not directly command any of these people to do any of these things. The Lord did not force them to do what they did. They chose to do what they did, and therefore they are fully responsible for their actions. So how do we work all this out? How do we understand our God? I'll just tell you where I'm at right now. I may change, especially maybe one of you will come up after the service and have a better point of view than I do, and I'm open to that. I think God removed his restraining grace from the hearts of these people and let their evil ways run their natural course. That's what I think. I think that God saw the discipline that was right for David, but I do not think that God directly told people, go do this and that. Yep, things I have forbid, I want you to go do it. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think God just withdrew and said, go ahead. You want evil? Go ahead. I don't even have to do anything. All I have to do is step back and watch what happens. Another little parenthesis, you want to understand what's happening in the United States right now? That's it. I think God has just said, okay, have yourselves. Go for it. And this is why we're seeing such chaos. May we hear and return to the Lord. I don't, again, I don't think we can escape the fact that God is somehow superintending all of this. But I think he's doing it in a way that does not mar his character. This is the strange sovereignty of God. And in my estimation, it is a tremendous outworking of grace. And by the way, one of the very subtle purposes of God in all of this is to undermine the legitimacy of Absalom's reign. Do you understand, as king, he just disqualified himself as king before God's sight? If nothing like this had ever happened with his father, just what Absalom did would have disqualified him. So in this strange way, God is using things that he's superintending to undermine the people who have risen up against David. This, this is strange. It's complex, it's beautiful, and it's filled with grace. And I invite you into the wonder of it. I invite you to be disturbed with me for a while, and don't be afraid of that. It might take you weeks to really work through the emotions of this. Please, don't hold that back from your heart, because there's real beauty here, there's real glory here. Now, you may agree or not with the way that I understand God's strange sovereignty, and that's okay. I really am eager to hear what you would think, and and after you prayed and sought the scripture and talked to each other, I really am very eager to interact with all of you about this. But whether we agree about all the details or not, I'm sure that we can agree that God's ways are strange to us, and I'm sure that we can agree that the ultimate example in the world of the strange sovereignty of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me just take a few minutes and help you understand what I mean. Have you ever thought about the enormous web of evils that it took to drive Jesus to the cross? 
Let me just mention a couple things. Judas Iscariot had to betray his close friend and benefactor, God incarnate, with whom he had been walking for three to four years. He had to lie about him, betray him to the authorities, and exchange his life for a measly 30 pieces of silver. What was Jesus' life worth to Judas? Not much. Oh, beloved, that is tremendous evil beyond what we can imagine. Jesus' disciples and family and close friends and supporters and beneficiaries and beneficiaries, they had to engage in a conspiracy of silence when they saw him being unjustly tried and convicted and punished. They sat by and did nothing. They said nothing. To protect themselves, they ran away. I don't even know that guy. Yeah, you know that guy. You know him really well. Oh, what an evil to forsake the perfect God who had never forsaken them. Beloved, that's not just a thing. That's evil. John in his gospel tells us that Jesus' own people, the Jews, did not receive him when he came. The one who had been so gracious to them century upon century. John says he poured upon them grace upon grace. And when he came, they absolutely rejected him and they handed him over to people who had the power to take his earthly life. Beloved, that is wicked evil. The Roman leaders who received Jesus put him through a trial. They actually determined the guy's innocent. This is not what they're saying it is. And they killed him anyway. Why? Because they cared about their own selfish ambitions more than they cared about the sacred son of God. And beloved, that is evil. It's not a small thing. It's evil. The Roman soldiers mocked and spit on the sacred son of God who had actually knit them in their own mother's wombs and determined the length of their days. They insulted him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They flogged him. They put him up on a cross. They watched him and jeered at him and mocked him until the moment that he died, and that is tremendous evil. And don't think that we're innocent of all these things. Our sin, our specific sin, is directly responsible in part for what drove Jesus Christ to the cross. We are indicted at the cross, beloved. So much evil occurred there. I have barely skimmed the surface of the evil that it took to get Jesus to the cross, and yet Peter the apostle stood up in an early sermon and said, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, this is Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts 2, 23. He said all of this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Are you hearing that? All of these evil acts that God forbids took place according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. I said it this way to Kimmy yesterday because it just uh, struck me that way. I thought, wow, that's amazing. God used and superintended evil to make the once for all sacrifice for evil. Isn't that amazing? God used the rebellion of people to put an end to our rebellion. God used our wayward ways to call us back from our wayward ways, to make a way for us to come to him and to have eternal life. God used all sorts of things to the end that he would be glorified by some people from every tribe and tongue and nation being released from the curse of their sin and being welcomed into eternal life with him. Beloved, that is the ultimate ultimate display of the strange sovereignty of God, and it is our lives, all right? Without that strange sovereignty, there's no eternal life. You see, I think any fool can use good to make good come about. I could even do that to some extent, but God is able to use evil to make good come about, and I, and I have to be honest. I haven't answered all the questions in my mind as to how that works, but I have settled into this. This is a good thing. This is a good thing, in God's strange sovereignty is our very life. So, when you look at David and think about how all this works out for him, I want to suggest to you that the strange sovereignty of God on the cross is what finally brought to a conclusion the word of judgment that God spoke against David in 2 Samuel 12. I want to suggest to you that the word of discipline God spoke in 2 Samuel 12 in some ways, it comes to resolution in chapter 20. We'll see that in a couple weeks. But in other ways, it does not come to resolution until the cross. And here's what I mean. God said to David, the sword will never again depart from your house. God said that. And the truth of the history is that there was tumultuousness and fighting inside the kingship of the house of David until Jesus Christ rose up and died on that cross. That word of discipline was not resolved until Jesus came. When God said to David, I will cause evil to rise up from within your own house, 
That evil remained generation upon generation upon generation until Jesus rose from the dead. A breath of time after Jesus Christ died and rose again, you know what happened? The earthly kingdom of Israel was evaporated, right? It came to an end. There were no more kings of Israel. They were gone, except that Jesus Christ became the ultimate king of Israel. Isn't that right? He became the the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies that came through David. But as for David's line, it was over, beloved. I suggest to you that on the cross of Christ, in God's strange sovereignty, he resolved the discipline against his son David and he fulfilled all of his promises and prophecies about Jesus that he gave through David. I'm telling you, there are glorious, glorious things here and I pray that you'll be willing to press into them with me. So let me summarize all this in just a sentence or two and then I'll pray. The point of today is that the discipline of God in our lives is actually a revelation of his love in our lives. The presence of his discipline confirms his love for us. There are two parts of this that make it work. One is our part, and that's humility. Without humility, we are repugnant to God. He, wants, he just wants away from us, you know? Humility attracts the Lord to us. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So, beloved, let's be humble. Let's learn what it means to be humble people. Second thing is, as God's working his discipline out in our life, we just got to know something. He's going to do things in some weird ways to us. I'm not saying he's weird. I'm saying it's weird to us. We don't understand. Just know that since God is not a God of your own making, he doesn't think just the way you think. And he's going to do strange things. And don't let that strangeness drive you away from God. Let it attract you toward God until you see the grace that's in his heart. Let's pray that he'll help us. Father, I thank you so much for this chapter. I thank you so much for the hours and hours that we spent together thinking about these things. I apologize, Father, if I have not made the complexity here clear enough, but I trust, Lord, that you have used my weakness to exalt your truth, to exalt your heart, to display some things about your character that we really need to know. And I pray now, Father, that by the Holy Spirit, you would use your word to work inside of our life. So, Father, we need your discipline. Even for those of us who are in a good place of our life with you right now, we're not perfect, and we need you to help us, Lord. We need you to discipline us, and so we need humility. Please give us the humility of David, Father. Please, even more so, give us the humility of Jesus. And Father, as you work out your discipline in our lives in ways that we just flat out don't understand, oh God, please help us not to become arrogant against you and bitter towards you and upset with you. Help us just to receive the fact that you really do know best and you work things out in a way that is, in fact, best. Help us, Father, in other words, to be humble before you. And I thank you so much for what you'll do through this word and by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. It is in the high and holy and happy name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.